Welcome to the Mediocre Outdoors Podcast, where we talk about everything outdoors. After living with teenagers, I decided that I have a lot of knowledge left and nobody really to give it to. So, I created this podcast so that I can give my information and my knowledge to you guys and pass it forward. So, today, um, I'm episode 20, which is crazy to me. Um, but this is just kind of a overview, I guess, of the last week or two. So nothing really special. Um, still working on getting a bunch of interviews going, but right as of right now, uh, everybody seems to be up to their eyeballs and work and nobody has a spare second to do an interview. So eventually when everybody kind of mellows out and we figure out this COVID thing and how to run with this new way of life, uh, we'll probably get some more interviews in. In the meanwhile, you're just going to have to listen to me ramble and rave about things that I kind of know what I'm talking about, but not really. Anyways, uh, so today I'm, I'm actually, uh, messing around with making some new, uh, arrows. So, um, for me, I'm going to do some archery hunting early in the season. Matter of fact, bear season starts as if we talked here in the, one of the previous episodes. Uh, bear season starts here in three weeks. So, uh, matter of fact, today I was out in the woods and, uh, found all kinds of bear sign everywhere. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure uh, a buddy of mine bumped a bear in the woods while we were uh, hiking. So, uh, yeah, we we got some bears out there. Bear season's coming um, for those who are interested. And I'm just going to kind of talk about my weekend, uh, my 4th of July weekend. So, first of all, drink of choice today is uh, bourbon and Coke. I'm usually more of a neat bourbon guy, but today it just, it's kind of 7th of July and it's raining out. Can you believe that? Washington, right? Anyways, 4th of July weekend, I decide to take my wife uh, up on a scouting trip for uh, animals um, in... July to about 7,000 feet in the Cascades. Now, for me, that's not too crazy. I mean, it. I'll be honest with you. Um, I definitely felt that trip when I got back because I'm obviously not in um, mountain shape yet. But, you know, with my day-to-day, I stay, I stay fairly fit. Um, for me, it was more about calories and hydration, really, than it was about um, muscles and stretching and um, kind of getting in uh, packing and hiking shape. So the packing portion didn't bother me. The hiking didn't really bother me, but uh, I was stiff and sore, and uh, at the end of the day, I was run down, so it was like replenish replenish some calories and uh, rehydrate and then go from there. So, uh, but anyways, we had a great trip. Uh, My wife has never done a trip like that, so it's kind of cool. We did an overnight backpack trip, and um, I used the Onyx to find this place. I've never been um, up to this. Well, 
I've been halfway. So there's it's about three, three and a half miles to um, to low kind of a, I guess not really a lowland lake, but um, into a larger lake uh, that a lot of people kind of walk into. Uh, it's pretty easy to get to. Um, but then from there, uh, it's, I didn't read my topo lines very well on my Onyx. I was looking more at the trail features. And if you guys are familiar with Onyx and those who aren't, the trail features, uh, if you zoom in close enough, it'll show you trails and the name of the trail. And then it also has like a, a green, yellow, red, it kind of lets you know how difficult the trail is. Now, what I found with this is, is I'm I'm assuming difficulty levels to the lowest common denominator, which I don't think those are quite how they work. Because what I'm assuming was green, uh, I would probably say for most beginners, was probably more of a yellow to orange. So getting close to that red. Uh, and the red is like... I wouldn't say rock climbing, but uh, it's pretty serious, pretty serious areas. So uh, very, very usually very steep. Um, anyways, I guess to paint the picture of this thing before we get going is um, I'm going to say this to you guys. Uh, well, actually, this is everybody, not just guys, but communication. So right off the bat, uh, the wife and I had some miscommunications, and it was very prevalent, very apparent, uh, and prevalent when we got on the trail. And what I mean is, is that kind of like the the color coding on the map, um, it didn't really paint a very real picture. And so, uh, for me. I, I, you know, I'd walked in the three first three and a half miles to the first lake, and I've done it several times. It's not a big deal. It's literally, I think, three and a half miles, you gain 200 feet elevation. It's, it's basically flat, right? Um, anybody, I've, I've taken six-year-olds up there with, with with school backpacks, you know, just for the day, day, day packs. Anyways, um, so I kind of painted that picture to her, and in my head, knowing... Not that I haven't been the last three miles, but knowing that I was going to get up into some alpine type stuff, um, I didn't relay that in a way to her that she really grasped what was going on. She thinks that we're going for a seven-mile walk in a park uh, or park-like settings or flat, and I took her into the devil's armpit. Um, switchback city. But there again, to me, it was actually even worse than what I was expecting. So I don't know how you can relate something uh, to somebody else when you don't even know yourself what you're up for. Anywho, uh, long story short, the trip was seven miles one way. Uh, overall, it was roughly 3,000 foot elevation climb. Um, but it's it, it, the, the problem was is it wasn't necessarily a gradual elevation climb. I mean, 3,000 feet and even seven miles is, is a pretty steep trek. But I would say you gain 200 feet in the first three and a half miles. And then mile three and a half to mile four and a half, 
you gain almost 90% of the elevation. Um, so we, we started out at the trailhead at 2,800. And then by the time we got to the first lake, we'd gone up to, uh, to 3,000 and then dropped back down to around uh, 26-ish. And then from there, we climbed up to 5,000. Direct. Just boom. Switchback city. Um, and my wife not being a hiker, I, I try to make her pack as light as possible. I mean, we, we kind of went over her pack. She kind of got mad at me because I was taking stuff out of her pack. But it was non-essential things. Like, we were going for one day. You don't need a whole roll of toilet paper, even though... Even though it doesn't take up much weight, it's bulky. Um, you know, she had three extra shirts and four pairs of socks. It's like, we're going for one day. You need, like, two pairs of socks and one shirt, you know, the one you're wearing. Anyways, um, so we kind of we kind of got got her packed down. I think we got her packed down to around 19 pounds um, for an overnight pack. And then mine was 40 and of course, mine had the tent and and the food and all that stuff and the water. But um, anyways, even with a nineteen pound pack, and she had sissy sticks, you know, it worked out or trekking poles, whatever you want to call them, uh, which helped her out immensely, especially for people that aren't in the best mountain shape. And for myself, whenever I'm carrying a heavy load, I as much as those things make me look like I somebody. Um, I, I don't know. They, they, I feel like, so here's, here's the thing, I guess, here we go on my, on my side tangents, but it's funny to me that, you know, you, there's a persona out there of certain people. And for me, being, being, you know, in, Growing up in Western Washington, I have influences from both Seattle and from Portland um, and Vancouver. And it's just, you get people that don't really understand the outdoors, even though they want to belong to that club. Um, and basically what happens is those people have fairly deep pockets and REI is probably the best advertised um, outfitter in those areas. And so what you have is you have a bunch of people that just go in and get like a lifetime's worth of gear as, you know, and set out in the woods as an expert with all the latest and greatest stuff and have no idea. And most people that know, well, I should say most people that know a lot of that stuff is gimmicks. A lot of that stuff is to make money and sell products and they don't really do much for you. So more the, the people that are more serious about it, or that grew up in that life don't necessarily use a lot of those products. So whenever you do see those products, you associate them with people that don't have a fucking clue what they're doing. Anyways, so for my life, that has kind of been the thing. And it was kind of hard for me to 
start using things like trekking poles because of that. Now, I don't use them all the time. I They're on my pack. And when I throw a deer or something like that or a quarter of an elk and I have three and a half miles to get it out, oh boy, do those things make a difference. Uh, heavy packs, uneven terrain, they're awesome. Uh, people that aren't in shape really to be uh, in those those situations, it helps out immensely. It just, basically what it does is it takes the weight off your leg and um, puts it into your arms and your shoulders. So it just, instead of being bipedal, now you're quadruped. So, and everybody knows quadrupeds get, get around better. So, uh, so that's the kind of thing. Anyways, so I have this stigma, and I also have, it's not only with, steady sticks, or not steady sticks, excuse me, uh, trekking poles. It's also with things like uh, the water bottle brand Nalgene or um, say the clothing brand North Face or Patagonia. I really don't have anything against those brands or those items because they do work and they work extremely well. It's just the type of people that usually associate themselves with those brands. For instance, um, there's a little mountain town that I like to go to every once in a while that's kind of a Bavarian-themed um, uh, town, and it's really cool, and there's lots of activities to do, and it's fun. I mean, I like to take the wife there once a year, twice a year. We have a good time over there. The problem is, though, is that you cannot walk down the goddamn street without seeing 8,000, I'm not joking, 8,000, thousand fucking North Face puffy jackets. And oh my god, not one person there actually needs the goddamn thing. But it's cool and it's trendy. So let's go get us a North Face because everybody else has one. Anyways. Sorry about the soapbox. Sorry about the rant. But it, it puts a sour taste in my mouth when I when I see people with that stuff. And you can look at, I mean, I I'm not a guy that judges book of the book by its cover, but I mean, a spade is a spade, a heart is a heart, a diamond is a diamond. And when you when you see somebody wearing that coat, it's like, man, you're driving an eighty thousand dollar SUV. You're wearing a hundred and fifty dollar jacket. Don't tell me that you actually use that thing. It's about status, and so. I, I just have grown up with a jaded opinion about this type of stuff. Uh, the products. I still have a jaded opinion about people, but that's a, for another podcast. Anyways, so what I'm trying to get at in a roundabout way are these products are very, very useful. And if you happen to be like me and you happen to grow up a little jaded um, about some of these products because of the type of publicity or the type of fame that they carry with them in, in certain circles. Um, I'm here to tell you, you have to be strong enough to look past that and use the product for what the product was meant for and forget status symbols and hierarchies and clicks and all the other crap that comes with it. So um, that's about as PC as I can make that. But what I'm getting at is, is that we used a lot of these products on this trip, and they were very useful, and I'm glad I and I'm glad I took them. Um, 
And so if, if I have a tip of the day, it's use what works, not necessarily what's trendy, but sometimes what's trendy is what works. Um, so anyways, back to the trip. So we, we get all packed up and we, we head up the mountain and, um, it's very apparent that my ego got in the way because the reason I was taking this trip and I was planning on either doing it with, uh, my cousin, which is the, uh, you heard on the, the turkey hunting podcast with me. He's kind of my new hunting partner and, uh, my cousin Josh. And so me and him were going to go up and do this hunt or this hike and kind of scout for archery season because we're both going to hunt archery in this area. Well, problem being is that my wife, bless her heart, I try to get her involved in the outdoors all the time and it's just not really her thing. But we had kind of talked that we might want to to do a few hikes and that she thought she'd be interested in that. So I got a little excited when she asked if she could go on this trip. Now, First of all, I should have said no. And not because I don't love my wife and not because I don't want her to go with me. Actually, just the opposite. Uh, I should have said no because I hadn't hiked this and I didn't know what was in store. And knowing that she has very little backpacking skills and was definitely not in shape for this, I should have passed um, and hiked it and then came back. And if I thought it was decent, then bring her. Unfortunately, in my life, I don't have that many opportunities, so I was excited, uh, very excited, actually, that she wanted to go, and I just threw caution to the wind and grabbed her, and we went. Now, the upside of that is, is I got to spend some good quality time with my wife without anybody else around. The bad side of that is, is I'm pretty sure, I was pretty sure by the time we were... I don't know, say just before we got back to the truck, half mile from the truck, um, so 13 and a half miles on this trip, I was pretty sure I was getting divorced. So that's kind of the extremes of this thing. And and the reason be, now, first of all, I got to say, my wife, I, I've always had the utmost respect my, for my wife, and, and she's probably one of the stubbornest, toughest, just salt-of-the-earth people I've ever met. But after that hike, my respect level for her has gone tenfold. And she's not only the toughest human being that I know. Um, she's got some damn grit, man. She's got some really good grit. And, uh, yeah, she, she took out her frustrations on me, which I can take that. Uh, I mean, I think all husbands should be able to take that for, for one point or another. In their lives, that's, that's kind of what we're good for is, is a uh, punching bag. But uh, we we go up this, this hike, and we start climbing these switchbacks. And right off the bat, I'm like, man, maybe I shouldn't have brought her. Maybe I should have just stayed at the first lake because she enjoyed that. There's plenty of campsites and plenty of good fishing, and we brought fishing poles. Maybe we should just stay here. Well, that's what I should have done. Um, A, because that hike was a good hike for her. 
she had no problems with it. It was a very low gradient hike, uh, very little demand, and she was in a good mood when we made it to that lake. Um, by the time we made it to the uh, the place where we camped at for the night, she had lost her good mood and was just exhausted. Why? Well, because I took her through hell. And like I said, we climbed 3,000 feet in the first mile. Uh, switchbacks everywhere. Uh, it was not pretty. The, the plan was is that we were planning on getting up to a mountain lake um, that I really wanted to explore. Uh, it just looked good to me. And I'm the kind of person that, I don't know if I've said this before, but I'm the kind of person that does not hike for fun. If I'm hiking, I'm, I have a purpose. And it's not for hiking. I do not hike to hike. And hiking to scout, for some people, is probably how they do it. For me, I, I'm too busy to hike to scout. So, in my head, I was hiking to go fishing with the opportunity to scout along the way. So, I packed my fly rod and a spinning rod for the wife, and we headed to this lake. Now, the reason this lake was so important is because it was in the general vicinity of where I wanted to scout. If you're thinking that I'm a hypocrite at this point, I, I pretty much am. So, uh, anyways, but we we get up, I, I, I coax her through and talk her through, which I don't think really had any effect. I think she was just so stubborn that she was going to go no matter what. And so, we get to the top of this thing, and we start heading across the saddle uh, on it to the other side of the mountain where we're going to meet up with this lake. Well, about 800 feet from this lake, due to the fact that the lake was on the north slope, um, the north aspect, the north facing slope. So I didn't realize that very well. It wasn't very easy to identify in the, uh, in the map that I had, which if realistically, if I was spent any time other than being like, yep, go in there, let's do it. Um, if I would actually done some research. I would have noticed that. Also, I would have noticed the contour lines um, that said, hey man, this shit is steep. But I didn't, because I was too excited. Anyways, we get 800 feet from this lake after we've been hiking literally all day. Uh, and I run into a snowdrift. And I didn't think much of it. I mean, I, I've been told that that area, uh, early July, depending on the year, could potentially have some issues with snow. Yeah. Nah, this isn't like the super high stuff, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm at fifty-two hundred feet. It's not seventy-five hundred feet. Anywho, uh, hit this snowdrift. We get through that. Come around the corner, and it's just solid snow. And so the wife, not having proper footwear or proper clothing, um, I decided that we're not going to make it to the lake. Well, uh, so now we're seven miles in. We are exhausted, and we got nowhere to stay. Well, fortunately, about a mile back down the trail, uh, we came across a small pond. Uh, this is a sag pond, 
uh, a depression, maybe a spring was there, and it feeds uh, one of the little uh, one of the little creeks that runs down the side of the mountain. And there just happened to be like a horse camp there, so there was a there was a spot for a tent and a fire ring and whatnot. So I told her, I said, "Well, let's turn around, let's hoof back another mile, get to that spot, and then we'll just make camp there." Because there's no way there's no way she's in any shape to to hike down to the lake, the lower lake. And honestly, even for myself, uh, it would have probably it probably would have been a pretty good stretch for myself. It was kind of that point when you when you have to tell yourself, yes, I can do it, but at what cost? I mean, we're supposed to be having a vacation, right? Like, we're supposed to be having a fun trip. We're not supposed to be beating the shit out of each other or ourselves uh, just to prove a point that we're, we can do it, especially when we're not in shape, because that's our fault to begin with. So, anywho... We we make it back to the um, to the little pond, and we set up camp. Now at this point, my wife has gone eight miles in rough ground, and she's exhausted. Luckily, she had plenty of water, um, so she was staying hydrated and snacking a little bit. But you could tell she was depleted. Um, she needed carbs, and she needed water, and she needed rest. So basically, I did a pack dump. And I just dumped my entire pack on the ground and did the NASCAR pit crew version of a tent setup and a bedding bedroll layout. And I got her laid down and relaxing and uh, pumped some water into her and made some glorious, wonderful, awesome mountain house and got her to eat some of that. And I think that we hit that spot, if I remember right, roughly around 5 p.m. And by 6.30 p.m., my wife was snoring. <laughs> Maybe not actually snoring, but she was, she was definitely sleeping hard. And uh, that, was, that was pretty much it, man. I, I got, the, I got the, the fire stoked up. I built a fire, um, which was fun because most of the stuff up there was still wet because it had been raining a few days before that. But that's where stuff like pitch wood comes in handy or having yourself a uh, a tender bundle or knowing how to make a tender bundle is pretty damn important at that point and what i mean by a tender bundle i'm sure you, if you've watched any survival shows on tv bear grills or any of those other knuckleheads um you understand what a tender bundle is if not Basically, what you do is you rip up the fibers, small as you can get them, um, so that they basically become flash fuels. And I guess I can go on a little tangent there, but think of think of whenever you're building a fire, you have a thing that is measured by what they call BTUs, or British Thermal Units, Right. So the hotter it is, the more BTUs it puts out. Think of it as like eating calories. Um, The more you eat, you know, the more energy you have. So uh, with fire, it's the same. The more it eats, the more energy it has. But when it's a itty bitty little tiny fire, 
uh, it doesn't have any BTUs, and so it's it's not very hungry, and it, it can't eat anything of any size. So by making a tender bundle, basically you're ripping fibers down until where they're so thin they're almost hair-like to where they will spontaneously combust with very, very low levels of heat and are very, very, very easy to consume. And so that's basically what you're doing. You're getting that product so small that it's easy enough for that fire to consume it and create BTUs. Now, the hotter that fire gets, the more it consumes, the bigger it gets, the more BTUs, the bigger the food that you can feed it, the bigger the wood, the bigger the organic material. So that's, that's basically what I did. Now, I cheated because you can also increase the BTUs by using an accelerant, right? So an accelerant being anything that's super flammable, gasoline, uh, plastics, uh, any long chain hydrocarbons. I mean, you name it. And if it will combust rapidly under low energy, then um, it's an accelerant. So in this case, I used pitch. So I found some pitch resin, and they've been saving it up from some old logs that I found, some old snags. And I saved this stuff up, and I heated it up, and I melted it into, like, little ice cubes pieces for fire starter. Now, the great thing about this stuff is once it takes off, it burns hot and it burns for a while. So, it's Mother Nature's fire starter. And once that stuff gets going, it's like napalm. It'll stick to anything and it'll burn forever. So, you don't necessarily have to do the small little tender bundle and then move to kindling and move to some little twigs and then move up to bigger pieces of wood and eventually firewood. Um, you just put some kindling down in a pattern and you just light that uh, pitch and let her go. And Bob's your uncle. You have a fire. So, side tangent again, but Something I feel is fairly important for people that want a little bit of extra knowledge and stuff like that. Um, anyways, so once I got my fire started, because we could, I mean, I could go on about fires. We could talk the difference between a teepee style kindling fire and a log cabin style kindling fire. And when to use those and when not to use those. Matter of fact, why don't we do that? Why don't I just ramble on about nonsense? So... There's two trains of thought. One is you do a teepee style. So you put your, your newspaper or your tender bundle or whatever you have, your, your light flashy fuels, the stuff that's going to burn super easy, your low BTU fuels, and you put them in the middle and then you would stack. Uh, you would stack kindling in a uh, teepee pattern. Now, for those, I guess, if I'm going to, Make this for everybody. For those of you that doesn't know what kindling is, if I hope there's nobody out there, but I ran into somebody the other day that didn't even know what a quarter was. They couldn't tell a quarter from a nickel. And uh, they're over the age of 12. So um, that concerns me a little bit. But anyways, here we go. Dumbing it down. 
Kindling is usually finely split wood, usually made out of cedar, uh, sometimes out of fir, but usually out of soft woods that are dried, um, that are very easily combustible. That is what kindling is. You could also use really thin sticks as kindling, but it's an intermediate starting fuel for a fire. Probably the best way to put it. Anyways, so you use a teepee method where you put that stuff where you have a point in the middle and everything kind of works out into a cone. Um, these This method works really well if you're trying to concentrate uh, your heat source in the middle of your pile. Uh, and, but the problem with it is, is that once you go teepee style, even your bigger wood, you almost have to put it on teepee style to get it to work right. And I just feel like balance, there's a lot of balancing and, and weird things going there. It definitely works. And in the right circumstances, it works really well. For me, I prefer uh, the log cabin method. I'm more of a log cabin guy. And so um, that's what I do. I do that on my fireplace at home. I do it in the woods because by using that method, you create a large um, airflow between the kindling pieces. Think of it if you built a log cabin and put piece over piece over piece, you get a lot of airflow through there. You get a nice little pocket that you can nest your bundles of uh, fine flashies in the bottom. Um, and then once that thing gets going, it's fairly rigid, and you can actually stack bigger pieces of wood over top of it like uh, like a roof of a house. And, of course, everybody knows what happens with heat. Heat rises. So if you have that piece of wood and it's, and it's, uh, it's able to be structurally sound on top of that pile as that pile is burning without smothering it, uh, all that heat is... And all that heat energy is going straight into that bigger piece of wood, heating it up, generating BTUs, and eventually, once it gets to 451 degrees, it ignites and combusts and catches on fire and burns, right? So, so that, that to me is my favorite style. Um, there again, me and my wife have a debate on that. She's a TP person and I'm a, and I'm a log cabin person. So, um, Funny thing is, is that we both start fires and, and both of our fires burn. It's just more of a preference thing. I I take more of an engineering look at it. She looks at it from strictly what she was taught as a kid. So, whatever. Uh, both our fires work. So, each to your own. Hope that was helpful. Anyways, back to my story. And a word from our sponsors. Ah, that's funny because I don't have sponsors. Anyways, um, okay, so I finally decided that I need to eat my food. I eat my food. I rehydrate. Um, I pull out the filters. I use, um, right now what I have is a little, um, uh, a little Sawyer. It's kind of like a life straw, but you can actually also screw it onto a, a bladder. And so... Next to our campsite, there was a little pond, which I didn't really care for the pond. I try not to use stagnant water if necessary, um, if, I can, if I can help it. Uh, and so we, uh, we ended up 
there's a little spring that was uh, a little feeder creek that was running into the uh, the, the pond, and so uh, I was able to find a spot where it was almost coming out of the ground, and I could get uh, some flow into my bladder, and so I just went ahead and filled my bladder, which it was clean water. I mean, it, is it possible that it had Giardia in it? Yes. Those of you who don't know, Giardia, beaver fever, it is a parasite that lives in water, usually caused from fecal matter in the water. It will give you some of the worst gastrointestinal problems that you will ever face. Uh, I would put it up there with maybe Salmonella or E. coli, maybe even worse. Quite a few people that I know that have gotten it uh, from stupidity. Uh, it's pretty bad. And I myself have had Salmonella. Um, that's a whole other story. But uh, I got Salmonella from uh, gutting a wild turkey and not cleaning my cuticles out properly before I ate, which. I highly recommend any birds that you are going to gut that you use gloves. Anyways, side side note again. But with this uh, filtration system, I was pretty confident that I had clean water. And so I made up a couple liters of clean water for the next day and went to bed. Now, the next morning, um, of course, if any of you that slept outside, especially without... Uh, a good pad or mattress will know that uh, it feels like somebody has just completely beat the crap out of your back with a baseball bat. And so uh, we were we were pretty stiff. Uh, as much as we tried to hydrate, I'm sure we still had some some dehydrated muscles and some stiffness and soreness, uh, inflammation, and whatnot in the muscles due to the exertion. But we uh, we got our stuff together. I thought I was slick, so I got I got to explain this because this is new to me, and I'm sure there's probably other people out there that have done this. To me, it was kind of I thought I was kind of cool, but I'm sure I'm not the first. But I've always kind of waterproof things and pack things uh, with Ziploc bags and whatnot. Well, here in the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of vacuum sealing. I started doing some vacuum sealing of things. And not necessarily to to preserve it, but more as a way to pack things. So, like, I cut up and made some little, I don't know, one inch by three inch uh, bags out of my vacuum seal bags. And I put things like one dose, uh, or one dose, one use of salt or one use of pepper, Right. And now that thing is sealed, it takes a minute room. You don't have to pack a big salt shaker or a big plastic container. You have this tiny little plastic container. Everything's vacuum sealed, so nothing's moving around, nothing's shaking. It's all sucked nice and tight. It's sealed. It weighs nothing. And I did that with all my seasonings. Um, I did that with my butter. So with the butter, I had a, a little one-and-a-half-inch by one and a half inch square and maybe one and a half inch deep uh, Tupperware container that I put basically a third of a stick of butter in so I could have butter for cooking. And I took that and then I vacuum sealed that thing in a little baggie and that kept the lid from popping off and getting smashed in the bag and butter getting warm and leaking out and all 
all the horrors, right? Not to mention, it takes away most of the scent of this stuff, so you don't have to worry so much about critters as much. Um, anyways, I even went so far as to take um, a lemon in case we in case we got some some mountain trout, and I, I love a little bit of butter and lemon on my mountain trout. So I took a lemon and I vacuum sealed that lemon. Now I didn't need to; it wasn't like the the lemon was going to go bad. But it was just that extra little bit of protection to keep it from getting crushed. And if it did get crushed, to keep it from leaking out all over onto my pack and all my gear. I, <laughs> so, I guess where I'm going with this is that I thought I was cool. And instead of doing a mountain house breakfast, I packed uh, a little vacuum seal bag of pancake mix and a little vacuum seal bag of bacon. Now, I was trying to figure out how to do the egg thing, and I just, yeah, the egg thing kind of, kind of maybe a little bit, I don't know, I, I just felt a little bit weird about the whole egg thing. Didn't want them to crush, and I thought about if I vacuum seal them, will that, you know, make it rigid enough to where they won't crush? I don't know. I don't know. I, I didn't, I'll, to be continued, I will, I will do some experimenting with the eggs. But anyways, so we did pancakes and bacon, and I had one of those little cheap aluminum mess kits, and I don't know how you, any of you have used those things, but um, for what I was trying to do with it, uh, over open fire, it sucked. Now, um, I've been listening to a few uh, podcasts myself and doing some research, on guys that really, really um, are hardcore in, in this kind of uh, adventuring. And their stove selection is a lot different than mine. Now, of course, they're not trying to make pancakes, but uh, what I have is a jet boil. And I've had my jet boil since 2006. I was, I was back when I was... Uh, doing wilderness hunts in uh, Idaho. And 2006, I mean, that's, that's things I've had that thing for 14 years. Now, it's never failed me. It ain't the greatest, but it does one thing really well, and that's boil water. And it's nice because everything is self-contained, but I'm starting to notice issues with it. It's not burning as well. It's not burning as hot. I think the burner is actually starting to give up the ghost, and I don't think it's too much longer for this world. Um, and then I started reading and listening to these guys talk about different products. I wasn't aware that there's a thing called a multi-fuel burning stove, meaning that you can buy a little stove, a uh, backpacking stove, that will burn basically any kind of fuel you can find. If you can find it, you can burn it in this thing. Now, that's pretty badass. Um, that's pretty badass from a survival standpoint. That's a pretty badass from a person that is frugal. That is pretty badass from a person that travels to different countries that maybe don't have isopropylene, butane, whatever the hell it is. Um, what is this stuff? Yeah, isobutane, which is what most of the canisters you run on these fuels but, um, yeah, it's pretty, that's, that's pretty hard to find anywhere outside of the United States. So, anyways, um, which I wasn't aware of. I'm, I don't travel outside the United States very often, so um, 
especially in a backpacking. Anyways, so it was kind of cool. Uh, and there's a whole list of these type of things. There's also a new thing. So with the jet boil, it, it's not that it's cumbersome because it's actually super compact. But compared to what they have out nowadays, it, it's kind of bulky. Um, they have a thing out now. I think it's MSR has it. It's called a pocket rocket. Now, this little stove, it literally will fit in the palm of your hand. Like, it's the size of, like, three shotgun shells. Maybe not even that. Maybe two shotgun shells. And weighs the size of, you know, weighs about as much as a AA battery. This thing, it's got little arms fold out so you can rest your pot on there or whatever. But it takes up zero space. It weighs nothing. And if all you're doing is boiling water for Mountain House or... Uh, a dehydrated uh, dinner or food, it's perfect. It'll boil water. Now, if if your only water source is snow, um, it doesn't sound like that's the greatest tool for the job, which nobody that listens to this, I don't feel, is in the market of being at 12,000 feet, hanging off a cliff, and the only water source you have is to melt snow. Um, if that's, if that's where you're at, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. So this is, this is for us dummies, right? This is the podcast for, for us beginners and us, uh, snoobies and us, us ignorant folk. So anyways, uh, check out the MSR pocket rocket or on it, get on Amazon. They have all kinds of these stoves for under a hundred dollars and for a guy that's going to go out for two or three days, or even just wants to have something to throw in his truck because he wants to make a pot of coffee or something like that, it's perfect. Now, to be honest with you, my jet boil is more of a French press than it is uh, a backpacking stove. So I carry that thing with me at work. I carry it with me on fishing trips. Uh, I carry it with me just about anywhere I go because when I want a hot pot of coffee... Um, it's got a French press attachment and literally I set it up, I throw some coffee in there, I throw some water in there, I boil it, I squish it and I drink it. Um, it's so easy and so simple and you don't have to buy that shitty ass instant coffee or Starbucks via or any of that other crap. You can have good, rich, quality coffee. So, that's what I use my jet oil for more. Um, but I'm not a big hiker, you know. I mean, I, I might go on two or three trips a year, and I might go out for a combination of 15 days a year, you know. So um, I'm not going to spend four or $500 on some, you know, backpacking, ultralight, crazy torch that will burn your tent down. Um, I just want something that's going to be lightweight, portable, and functional. So, um, but these multi, these multi-fuel stoves and these pocket rocket type stoves, um, got my interest and I think I'm going to start looking into it and maybe I will get a couple of these and do, do some, uh, some novice tests. And just kind of see what works out best for the beginner and price-wise and stuff like that. Um, anyways, so where was that? Oh, breakfast. Yeah, so I make these pancakes. And these pancakes, uh, 
as you can think of with an aluminum pan and uncontrollable heat, it, it was a mess. I had, no matter how much butter I had in there, I even used the bacon grease and cooked the bacon first thinking I could use that as grease. Did not work. All it did was displace the grease and stick to the bottom, and we ended up eating pancake uh, nuggets or pancake crumbles and um, some very well-cooked bacon. So the bacon was a success, the pancakes weren't, but, it, you know, as my old man would say, it all makes a turd. So that's where we left it, and we ate our breakfast, we packed up our packs, and we took our asses straight down that mountain and straight to the truck. Um, happening to do it again, I would definitely do it again. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it in about three weeks. Um, but I think the wife's going to stay home. Now, what I've learned from this is, and I think I talked about it a little bit ago, is that don't go chasing waterfalls. No, that's not it. Um, don't don't take somebody new, and if you're new, then that includes you. Do not take somebody new into a place um, that has not been scouted out or you haven't done your research. You're almost in inevitably going to end up with headaches or problems. Now, the way I've lived my life is I step in with both feet and I figure it out as I go. I worry about the consequences later. It's the whole, uh, I'll stop when I'm dead or I don't, I'll just do what I do. You know, it's, it's those kind of, kind of things. And, you know, if I was meant to not make it, then I won't make it. Whatever, you know, faith and fate and all that stuff. So I just, I don't think about that kind of stuff. I just go. And now, so far, I have not gotten myself into a pickle where I couldn't get out of it um, or that I needed assistance from other people. But uh, I'm sure someday there will become a time when that will happen. Um, but also, the cool thing about it is, is that once it's all done and all that misery and headache and, you know, problems are done and solved and over and you're standing on the other side of it, it makes for a great story. And it makes for a great camaraderie once everybody makes it out safe and, and sound. So you can look back on it and share that story with friends and family and each other forever. So I think sometimes some of the worst situations and the stuff you had to think through and work through and the stuff that doesn't come easy usually makes for the, uh, the best stories. So... Anyways, uh, yeah, that was a great story. That was a great time I had with my wife. Uh, if I had it to do over again, I don't know if I would change much because I think of what I got out of it. She didn't divorce me, by the way, in case you were wondering. Um, she actually was talking about doing another hike, but maybe a mild one. And I guess that would be another thing that I learned is that maybe when you take somebody out, you, you start slow. Baby steps, right? I don't do baby steps well. I guess that's kind of where I was going with the other things. I don't do baby steps well. I just jump in with both feet. And maybe being considerate of others um, and their abilities might be something. Because, yes, I was extremely excited that my wife was going to go out with me. But I could have... And maybe I did. I don't know yet. I'll, I'll let you know later. But 
I could have very easily have completely soured her on that experience, and maybe she would never want to go hiking ever again. Now, I don't think that's the case. I feel pretty confident that maybe I can take baby steps and slowly get her back out there, but um, it wasn't the best experience for her. And a lot of people in this sport or this outdoor world, uh, if they're not used to it, and you try to take them too deep or make it too hard for them off the bat, um, you could you could ruin them. So if you're if you're new or you're bringing somebody into the outdoors that's new, uh, take it slow, baby steps, make it enjoyable. You know, maybe we start off slow and we we just take them fishing at the local pond or. We go for a day hike, or maybe, shit, maybe you just go for a walk around the park. I don't know. But um, I can guarantee you that taking somebody out of shape um, that has never really done any serious hiking could, could potentially be catastrophic. So uh, I know it was almost for me. Uh, luckily, my wife knows me, and she's tough as nails, and hopefully she recovers, and that she will want to maybe go on another hike sooner. So, um, talk to you later. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and all the other podcasts that I have recorded. If you have comments for me, or maybe you have a suggestion about a new podcast, or maybe something that you want me to research and find an expert that might explain it better to you, get a hold of me at weinke333 at gmail.com or... You can also find me on Instagram at Mediocre Outdoors. If that doesn't work, you can always get me on Anchor. Anchor Anchor.fm. Leave me a message. Mediocre Outdoors. Thanks. I appreciate it. And keep listening.